In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Long ago, a pear tree was planted in New York. It was planted near Building 5 of the World Trade Center. And since the 1970s, its delicate white blossoms every spring brought a touch of nature to a world of concrete. In 2001, after the 9-11 tack, this tree, like so many around it, disappeared under the fallen towers. But amazingly, in the months to follow, cleanup crews found the tree pinned and smashed under concrete. It was severed, and the remaining eight feet of its trunk were charred black. The roots were broken, and there was only one living branch. Initially, the cleanup crews thought it was a total loss, but in the moment and with all going on, someone called the Parks Department and decided maybe it was worth trying to restore the tree to health once more. So off it went to a nursery in the Bronx. Once the dead burned tissue had been cut away and the roots were shaped up and it was placed in good, rich soil, miraculously, the tree survived. And it gave it a new name. They named it the Survivor Tree. But its story didn't end there. Tragedy hit that tree again sometime later in 2010 as a violent storm blew through New York and uprooted the tree once more. So the Parks Department carefully packed compost and tried to salvage the tree one more time. And after weeks of gentle care, it miraculously pulled through once again. The following year, the tree finally found a permanent home as part of that 9-11 memorial as it was planted under the shadow of the South Tower. It was planted actually with its kind of um, rough side facing the public. Initially, people didn't like it. It was a little too rugged, a little too traumatized to look at. But as I'm sure Father Greg could attest to, in 20, uh, at the 10-year anniversary, survivors and families, as you would imagine, gravitated towards that tree and tied blue ribbons around it as they could identify with what it had been through. Its story is often told as one of resiliency, and survivorship. But it's a much broader story than even that, because it's actually a story of rescue and redemption. Had not those Parks Department folks multiple times tried to restore the tree, it surely would not have survived. Analogously, Advent stands for us as a similar reminder, a season um, that if we walk through it, if we engage it, points us towards restoration and rescue. And not just of one in the past, but toward a future restoration as well. Bearing in mind these Advent themes, um, let's actually look at the psalm this morning, which so poetically wraps them up in six short verses. I'd encourage you to open in your Bible to it, to Psalm 126, or you're welcome to follow along on the screens as well. 
That word and that theme of restoration um, actually is found in two portions of the psalm, each of which call forward a theme or a lesson for us to ponder and dwell upon in this season of Advent and as um, a way of life for us as Christians. As we open to it, it's actually worth noting that unlike many of the psalms, it's not grounded in a particular place in history. It's a song and a psalm that would have been returned to actually not in times of triumph, as verse 1 tells us, but in times of tragedy. In fact, as the people of Israel were often in exile, which sadly happened more frequently than they would have liked, it was there that this song would be recounted and said as a way to look at past moments of restoration whereby God had delivered his people. And so there we encounter that word when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion for his people. And as they would be sitting in captivity, as they would be sitting in times of great trial and tumult, it would be there that they would think back on past moments of restoration that then served to reshape the present, even in the midst of where they were. We see this is true many times in Scripture in the Old Testament. In the middle section of the book of Isaiah, there's a look back into God's deliverance and restoration of his people in Egypt as they sit in captivity awaiting this future restoration that's promised and foretold on the lips of Isaiah as they hope to be delivered from Babylon. Much later, in fact, in those books between the Old and New Testament, historically called the Apocrypha, it's there in the Maccabees that we see that the Israelites look back then to the moment of deliverance from captivity in Babylon in hopes that God would restore them from their captivity under Roman rule in the present, where um, the opening story of the gospel of Jesus Christ begins in Matthew. And God does indeed restore them, but not in the way that they expected, as we know as that story goes in a couple of weeks. But the point is this, these moments of restoration and recalling of past redemption would in many ways be dreamlike. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. It was like a surreal moment that in the midst of captivity, they could be joyful. They could have these moments where they would step back into what God has done, and it would reshape what was going on in the midst of the presence. They would enter into it, and it would give them hope for the future and peace in the midst of what's going on. Joy is a theme in this psalm as well. It arises four times in six short verses as a theme as um, parallel to this restoration that is called forward. The point is this, that for us in the midst of Advent, this season calls us to do the same. We look back to the prelude uh, in the prophets in these weeks. We began in Zechariah last week. We heard Malachi today. We even heard the, la the last and final prophet in John the Baptist just moments ago, all of which build up to this marvelous crescendo of Christmas Eve, whereby we recall the moment. The moment in human history when in the midst of bondage, God steps in in Jesus Christ to redeem not just a nation, not just a people, but all of humanity itself from the hands of 
the bondage that we are in by way of sin and death. It likewise serves to call forward for us in the midst of the presence that indeed, as that last verse goes, God has done great things for them. Indeed, he has done great things for us of which we are glad and rejoice. My friends, the first and obvious lesson, I believe, as we reflect on these themes of rescue and restoration in this lyric are this, that we're called to be people who recall God's past faithfulness time and time again. The biggest moment, of course, comes on Christmas Eve when we recall God became flesh and dwelt among us. But personally, we mustn't overlook the moments of restoration that God brings forth in our lives. In fact, if we allow our minds to wander even just for a moment, it doesn't take long to begin to think about the ways that God has rescued and restored us in big and small ways. In these past two years, we're uh, more grateful when God restores our health in the midst of all that's going on. When we think back on times of trial, we think of times when he's restored, rescued, and reconciled us in relationships with others in addition to himself. As we begin to look at another winter in North Texas, we're well aware of the restoration of basic needs that we passed through early last year and hope that this year will be a little bit more stable. What moments of restoration, big and small, can we recall this morning? It's in such recollection that it will reframe the present for us, bringing joy even in the midst of pain, or at least seasons of weariness, or the corporate season of discontent as we long for things to be different. It's in the recalling that we're filled with joy and encouragement for the days to come. Find ways in the weeks to come to, in your own way, recount and recall what God has done. Jot it down somewhere, look at pictures, find a way to enter into those moments as big or small, as immediate, or as distant as they may be. It truly reshapes our mindset in the midst of the present. And when we recall God's past faithfulness and restoration, it doesn't just merely rechange and reorient our mindset in the present, but it also reorients us toward the future restoration that we await. And it's there we turn back in verse 4 to the final section of this short psalm and a final lesson that it brings forth. This time, when it begins in verse 4 with that word restore, it takes a different tone. It's a plea. It's a prayer that God would do so once again. Having recalled past moments of restoration, here it's turned into a petition to the Lord, restore us. There's a yearning for it to come to pass once more, even in the midst of the seemingly impossible circumstances in which such prayers are uttered. There's an agrarian image in verses 5 and 6 that um, bear worth unpacking just briefly because it brings forward this idea of impossibility and risk. The Negev, as we know, is a desert, but it was often there that the people would sow seeds in the midst of the desert in anticipation of the erratic rains that would bring streams and hopefully bring forth sheaves that would be a harvest for the year to come. They were aware of the risk, 
not only planting seeds in the desert, but also that those erratic rains could often bring even more than streams. They could bring flash floods and wash away all the toil and labor that had sown those seeds in the first place. In addition to that, we see there's a deeper level of poetry at play here, that these tears that are shed in such barren seasons begin to produce fertile soil for which the Lord can begin a new thing in the lives of those who seek him, a season of growth and restoration. The theme in these verses is a plea for desired change, which can only come through the one who has shown and proven himself to be the one who can bring restoration at all, namely God himself. And I think in those verses is a second lesson for us to reflect on, that we're not only just called to recall, but we're called to renew our hope and our commitment upon what God has done. That as we think back on his track record, both biblically and in our personal lives, that it should give us a chance to renew our hope. That's why in Advent we begin with the full Decalogue, the full Ten Commandments. Where have we placed our hope elsewhere? Where have we gone astray and um, put our hope in other things or people? It's there that we hear the cry of John the Baptist and even these apocalyptic passages that remind us that indeed the Lord will set things right, but there will be a reckoning as he does so. So that we who await that future fulfillment may be ready for its completion and its restoration upon Jesus' return. Where do you and I need to recalibrate our hearts in this season? Where do we need to renew our hope or return or repent as this theme calls forward from other places that we place our hope of restoration upon instead of God himself? It's in that wholehearted return. It's in that annual rhythm that reminds us to do so, that we heed such a season of preparation that comes as we hear in these weeks as a thief in the night, and thus we are called to be ready. A season that holds in harmony this past restoration as we look back and recall it, but also this future fulfillment as we look for Jesus' return. So that with confident hope, we may be placing our trust daily in the one who can bring us peace in the present and then bring us peacefully into his presence forevermore. And the last piece is this, that as believers, we walk this rhythm, but we're called to not just walk it for our own soul's health, but so that we too may bring that light out into the world in our own generation. To borrow this line from the psalmist, that we who are in the midst of many nations might bear witness in the midst of them to the hope that we profess in Christ Jesus, especially at such a time as this and such a season as this, one where it doesn't take much looking when you walk out your door or open your garage in the morning to see the signs of hope of restoration wrapped up in lights and tinsel and songs and traditions, all of which like that survivor tree, look to reach back at some prior moment, feeling, theme, or emotion, but all of which are fleeting, as we know from our own experiences, and certainly don't have any promise of a future. Thus, we're called to become people who are signposts to the world around us, symbols, if you will, of a hope and a peace that never fade, a joy that doesn't get put back into the attic in January or kicked to the curb with trees in that season, but one that endures daily 
day in and day out, as we await its confident fulfillment upon Jesus' return. So thus, we are called to begin by recalling what God has done for us, but then also to renew our commitment to him so that we in those stories may be people of Advent who are prepared daily, but then have those stories tucked away in our hearts so that whether we're picking up kids or grandkids from events or at school and having those conversations with others who wait, or whether we're in classrooms ourselves or at work in our neighborhood, that we can draw upon them to bring hope in the midst of circumstances to those who desperately need it. And thus, it keeps us oriented daily, now more than ever, in a world that needs to know it and is looking for it in so many different ways. So take time in the weeks to come to prepare your heart by preparing to look back at what God has done, both for us corporately and individually, and then find ways to renew your hope and your commitment in Him so that we may always be looking forward to it in its confident return in Jesus' sake for our lives, but not just for us, but as we're reminded weekly, for the sake of the whole world. And so in this season, we utter those words from Revelation, surely the Lord is coming soon, and our petition becomes amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>